RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, supplemental number 59, the one with Dr. Anand Swami Nathan. Welcome into a supplemental edition of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. If you've listened to Mission Log, you know that we go to an effort to make it timeless, as evergreen as possible. So you could pick out an episode from now or from five years ago and still hear a discussion of relevant ideas. We're living in interesting times, though. The threat of the novel coronavirus and the disease it causes, COVID-19, has upended our professional and social lives, damaged economies on a large scale, and frankly, given us a world where we're faced with new dangers and ambiguous answers. Our partner podcast, Shabam, here on Roddenberry, talked to Dr. Anand Swaminathan recently to get some perspective on what we like to talk about, morals, meanings, and messages, or more specifically, the ethics of how we treat each other during this new threat. Give it a listen. And stick around for Dr. Swami's fun story about meeting Leonard Nimoy. I promise it'll make you smile. So I'm here with my friend, Dr. Anand Swaminathan. He's an emergency medicine doctor who works at St. Joseph's Hospital in Patterson, New Jersey. He's joining me today to discuss Spock's famous line in Wrath of Khan, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one in the context of the coronavirus pandemic. Now, in the movie, Spock ends up sacrificing his life to save everyone on the Enterprise, which is not an easy choice, but the logic of his decision was simple. In reality, though, is it that simple? There are different needs, different groups of people. It seems like it could be too simplistic. What do you think, Swami? No, I agree. I, I think it is. It's, it's a little bit, it is a little bit simplistic, especially, I mean, you know, the situation that they're talking about in the movie, and, and uh, I'm not going to try to feign, like I don't know the scene exactly and that I haven't seen it 500 times because that would be a lie. But the scene is, it's a very clear I make this sacrifice, everybody else lives, right? It's a clear black and white. There's no gray in there. And so we look at it from time to time. And as a physician in a clinical scenario, taking care of a patient, I don't think about, I have to think about the patient in front of me and not the whole of population and what's best for the whole population. I have to think about what's best for this patient right in front of me right now. And so it would be easy for me to say something like, well, I got a 85 year old guy in front of me who's got multiple medical problems, who's coming in with really bad COVID-19 and needs a ventilator. And so I can put him on a ventilator. I can intubate and put him on a ventilator. But I know that the chance of him surviving this disease is extremely low. So maybe I should just not put him on the ventilator and save that vent for when the 25-year-old comes in who's got really severe illness who's more likely to survive. And so you can have that conversation in your head, but it's not a black and white thing because that 25-year-old may never come in. I might get other ventilators in the meantime. There are other exterior inputs. You know, in the, the movie, in the line that Spock says, it is... If I do this input, I will get this output. There's no question. We don't have that luxury to say, if I do X, Y will happen. It's if I do X, anything between one and a million things could could happen as a result of that. And then there's all these other inputs that can come in. So I, I don't have the luxury to do that. But the people who do public health, that's that's actually their job because they're not clinicians seeing a single patient in front of them. So they're trying to make a decision based on what's best for everybody, what's best for the population. And, and they're... Decisions are not black and white either, right? I mean, so even like the recommendation for quarantine is by far not a black and white situation. We don't know. We don't have hard science that says if we quarantine for X number of days, 
this pandemic will be squashed and we can all go back to our normal lives. We have some data that tells us that, and and we have some modeling that tells us that, but models are always wrong. They're only informative. And so that we're working off of incomplete information and trying to figure out. Nobody knows how is you know the temperature warming up going to affect this. If, if a wind's come in from the north, how's it, anything can, can change this at a heartbeat. So but the public health officials are the ones who really are trying to say the, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. What's the best thing for all of population for us to, to get back to where we were before? It's, it's just not a black and white decision to make. And so they make the best decision they can, and then they deal with the consequences afterwards. But I, I think as physicians, we really try not to think that way and think about the individual patient in front of us. The stress on the system has been, you know, I walk into work and I get numbers. Um, we have X number of events left in the hospital. Right now, we're kind of on the uptrend in that we have more vents than we did two weeks ago. And so I'm not having to make that decision on the spot of I can't intubate this patient because I don't have a vent. But a couple of weeks ago, we were down to single digit vents. We were, you know, two, three, four vents left in the hospital. And so each time you saw a patient, you really did have to think, I can put this person on a vent. But if I do that, that means I only have one vent left in the hospital. And so it's inevitable that a patient's going to come in that's going to need a vent. And I might not have it for them. So now, do I really want to intubate this person or not? And, and that was a decision we were we were having to really strongly consider three weeks ago and think about what was best for the other patients that were going to be coming in as opposed to just the patient in front of us. But then also thinking, what's the best for the patient in front of us? If the patient really is that old, has that many comorbid conditions, has that low of a likelihood of a bad outcome, then am I just flogging them? Am I actually doing more harm to them by trying to save their life? And then what's the best thing and, and making those decisions? So I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's just not, it's not black and white. And, and I would love it to be easy for me to just go in and be like, okay, if I do this, this will happen and that outcome's bad. So I won't do this thing. It just doesn't work that way. You know, it also seems to me that it gets further complicated by what the needs are. When you're talking about vaccines, for example, from a public health standpoint, the need to vaccinate the healthcare workers, which are the few, outweighs the need of a whole the whole population right in the beginning to get vaccinated because those are the people that need to have the most protection. Yeah, I, and I think you do have to make those decisions in that in that direction. And obviously, I have a vested interest in getting the vaccine first, but but I do think that you want to keep. Physicians, nurses, PAs, NPs at work. And a vaccine will allow us to do that. And not only will it allow us to do it, it'll allow us to possibly do it without all of the protective equipment that we're using right now, or maybe less of that. And it'll allow us to go into situations where it's a dangerous situation without the vaccine. But now that I'm vaccinated and I'm immune, it's not a dangerous situation, which means I can actually give better care than I otherwise could because I'm delaying care or, uh, you know, I'm having to make adjustments to what I can provide because of the risk to my own health. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's a, a good example of where you need to get to the few first. Obviously, if we had unlimited vaccine, it's not an issue, right? So, again, it, it makes it not so black and white. The gray is how many vaccines do we actually have and who should get them first? Um, it, it's, it's, again, it's a really tough decision to try and make and figure out. And, and again, I'm, I'm happy I don't have to make the decision. I just have to go along with whatever decision gets made. Because I don't know how to do it. I mean, you know, older people should probably be vaccinated first because they're more likely to get really bad disease and, and sort of in a really backwards way. Kids should be vaccinated last because kids don't get critical illness from COVID-19 from everything that we know to this point. 
kids between the ages of like one and 12 just don't really get very sick. So they should be the last group that we hit with vaccinations, except for the kids that have chronic illness who should probably be getting it before uh, before older people get it. You know, but I don't have to make that decision, fortunately. It makes a great movie line, but in reality, it's like, I, I don't think that it's very easy to just use that metric, right? Because you have to think about everything. Like, you you know, you're, you're trying to think of what am I, what can I do for this patient? Public health people are trying to think of what can we do for the most amount of people possible. And in that calculation, you're, it's not always going to look like you're looking out for the many, right? Right. Because like for this vaccine situation, you are actually looking out for the many. Uh, it just means that some of the many will have to just sacrifice by continuing to be at home. Or I mean, to bring it back to the movie, like what you want is somebody like Spock that can be totally logical and keep emotions out of it and make the decision based on the logic, logical inputs. I mean, there's way more inputs into this kind of a decision, but you need that kind of cold calculating math to say this is the best thing to do. But divorcing ourselves from emotion is impossible. So it makes it very difficult for us to make those decisions. Um, but that's what you need. You need you need people who really understand the statistics, the epidemiology, the numbers, but that aren't seeing patients themselves. I mean, even for us, we talk about how, again, we're not deep into it now, but when we were really deep into it and we were trying to make end-of-life decisions on, on people and saying, you know, who should maybe give up a vent? They're on a vent, but they're never going to get off of that vent, but we need the vent. So how do we how do we do that? And and I mean, it's basically like a palliative extubation or you're you're transitioning patients who are intubated to hospice care. And one of the one of the really important tenets of that decision is it can't be the physician taking care of the patient making that decision. So you can't ask me to see a patient that's my patient and then say, yes, let's take this patient off of a vent and give that vent to someone else. It has to be a team that is divorced from the patient that does not have that relationship because otherwise there's no way you can ask us to do it. It's not that I can't make that decision. Logically, I can see the 90-year-old in front of me who's intubated on a vent and say, this person has no chance for survival. And yes, you should take this patient off the vent and give that vent to the 20-year-old next door. I can logically make that decision and I can say it, but the the, the post-traumatic stress disorder, the effect that that will have on a, on a physician or a nurse's psyche is... Who knows what it is? Uh, it, well, it, you're not a Vulcan. That's the thing. <laughs> as much as I'd like to think that I could be in that moment, you're not. You're not. And, and you know, we compartmentalize as much as we can. And there is no way that I have dealt with 95% of what we've gone through mentally over the last month or so. It's all compartmentalized because I have to go back to work. I have to function. I have to take care of my family. But at some point, it's going. I'm going to need to address it or I won't be able to work. And uh, I mean, again, fortunately, I have a wife who's a psychologist who can, you know, pull some of this out of me and help me to deal with it a little bit. But I think you're going to see a lot of physicians needing to see a, a psychologist or a psychiatrist or a therapist for the first time to deal with all these things that they've just had to put away until it's all over with. And how do you do that? I don't think it's a logical. I, I mean, I'm sorry. I don't think it's a conscious decision. I don't think you in the moment say like, OK, I'm just going to put that away and move on. I think to a certain degree, we train ourselves to do it over time because, you know, we'll see, I'll go in for a 12 hour shift and it's possible the first patient I see is a 25 year old who, who dies and I've still got to work 11 hours. So, you know, I can either succumb to that not be able to compartmentalize and not be able to move on and then just say, I can't work for the rest of the shift. Someone else has to come in. And sometimes that, that happens to people, right? They are so destroyed by a circumstance that they just say, I can't, 
I, I can't do this today. And I, and I think that's a good thing for people to be able to be honest about and say, this isn't going to work because if you can't compartmentalize it and get over with it, you're not going to provide good care and it's not good for you either. But I think we just kind of learn to a certain degree. I, I have to put it away and I can't deal with this right now. Um, and I'll, I'll deal with it later. I think for many of us, we have the deal with it later is there is no deal with it later. It just gets put away and it just gets kind of stacked and stacked and stacked and stacked until people break down. And that's where I think a lot of burnout can come from. I think the newer generations of physicians are maybe a little bit better at, at saying this is enough. I need to, I, I need a release. I need to get out this out of me. Um, but I don't think it's a conscious decision. I think it just kind of happens because we realize I, I have to keep working. I have to I have to keep doing this or else, you know, other patients are going to suffer because of it. Yeah. So I want to go back to the line again and why reality is a lot more gray than in the movies. In a lot of ways, asking people to stay home for the sake of the people who are sick, that is kind of the reverse. It's totally the reverse. But it does have implications for the many, right? So, so again, this is another example where in reality, this, this, there's no easy way to talk about this, right? Because it's, it's a very complicated, it's all connected in ways that defy explanation yeah. in a one line in a movie. And, and it's immediacy too, right? So again, the line in the movie, I do X, Y happens, and Y happens right afterwards. It's a clear cause and effect. And we don't have that. We don't have the immediacy of our actions yielding results. And so people are like, okay, I'm going to do quarantine. Where's the benefit? And you're not going to see the benefit. You're not going to see the benefit for weeks to months. And and now we probably are seeing the benefit now because people are saying, oh, we're not nearly seeing as many deaths as all the public health experts said we would. And I'm like, yeah, because we quarantined, right? I mean, we did the right thing. That's why we're not seeing that. So we're we're just starting to see the effect of the quarantine. So either we can learn from other places where they did it and they can show the benefit or we can do it and just say, I have to have faith that this is the right thing to do and that these people are advising us properly and then just wait it out. But because you don't have that immediacy, I think it makes it even harder for people to logically say, I'm going to stay home, give up my work, possibly give up my business that I've been building, but I'm doing it because it's going to be better for me and my family and my community. And then a week or two later, you're like, nothing's changed. I still can't go back to work. And I'm still hearing about people dying and getting sick. It just takes time for those things to, to really bear out. And again, we're navigating in waters that we've never seen before. We've never seen anything like this in the last hundred years. We've never seen anything like it. So we just don't know. And we're still learning as we go. I, I think that's the problem with the effects of doing the right thing, being so spread out and being so invisible. A good analogy is if you're a parent of a child who has a peanut allergy right? Because you're doing all this stuff, you're checking cookies, you're checking labels, you're making sure you're going through a lot of stuff for nothing, basically, because you want nothing to happen. Uh, and it seems like you're crazy. And, and I think that's why it's also harder for other people who don't have kids who have allergic, you know, allergies to understand, why can't I just bring this peanut butter and I'll just stand over there and eat it? Yeah. You know, yeah. It's like, well, happen. it's probably okay, unless it isn't. And then right, it's really exactly. bad. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's funny because I think about this. So, um, we had two, I can't, I don't think it was back to back years. I think they were a couple of years apart. We had two hurricanes in New York. We had, um, Irene and then what was the, Irene was like the not so bad one. And then like three years later we had the, and, I, and I'm blanking on, and then Sandy, right? So Sandy was the horrible, horrible, awful one, right? So like Irene came through and they were like, this is going to be the end of days. 
stock up on food. You're going to lose power for a week. We were, we lived in the hospital. We basically like went in on Friday and we're like, you're not going to leave until Monday. And uh, I remember I lived in a um, three bedroom apartment in Hoboken and we had like a little basement storage area where we had just had all our crap and Hoboken floods under the best of circumstances. So, you know, Irene's coming and we're like, we got to empty everything out of there. So I spent a day getting all of the stuff out of there and bringing it into the apartment and then nothing happened. And so then Sandy's coming and we're looking at it and we're like, oh, Sandy's coming. And they're like, it's going to be the end of days, stock up on food. You're not going to be leaving the hospital. And my wife is like, do you think we should empty the, the storage area out again? And I'm like, I'm not making that mistake again. No, we're not doing that. And then of course, everything floods. We lose everything in the basement. And so like, oh, it was, a, it was, it was a perfect example of you put in the extra time and nothing happened. Great. You don't put in the extra time and you lose everything. And, 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 you know, I have the fortune or bad fortune of, of getting both sides of that. And now knowing just do the extra prep because it's like, if it, if it ended up not being necessary, it's okay. Right. So if you, if you, Tell everybody coming into the house, don't eat peanut butter in the house, and then nothing happens. It's really not that big a deal. But that is also the point, right? Like, there's this epidemiologist in Chicago. She gave this great uh, uh, press conference where she was talking about that nothing is the point, and she summed it up really well. Her name is Emily Landon, and here's the clip. We have to fight this fire before it grows too high. These extreme restrictions may seem, in the end, a little anticlimactic. Because it's really hard to feel like you're saving the world when you're watching Netflix from your couch. But if we do this right, nothing happens. Yeah. A successful shelter in place means that you're going to feel like it was all for nothing. And you'd be right. Because nothing means that nothing happened to your family. And that's what we're going for here. That's a win. Yeah, but I think because the effects are so invisible and are so far in the future and not immediate. That's another reason why you see a lot of cities, a lot of people around the United States who resist the calls to stay at home. And I'm frankly worried about Alabama and Florida and those states. I mean, those states were way late. Right. So that they were even later than New York. And yeah, I mean, I think New York wasn't that late. It was just, there's a lot of people close together. Yeah. So. And, and, and this is the hard thing with it because we were we weren't late in terms of the actual date on the calendar, but we might have been late in terms of there was already community transmission of the disease when we went into right. quarantine. Whereas you know other places who shut down earlier, they didn't have any cases. So then quarantine works when you don't have any cases going on. I mean that's part of it. There's there's I'm sure there are lots of other things. You know you look at a place like I have friends in Kentucky who are like, well we really don't have any cases. And and they said, well, you know, we we're it's it's hill country here. People live far apart from each other. We don't have these huge apartment buildings with a thousand people living in them. So maybe that's why we don't have as many multi generational homes or, or multi generation one bedroom apartments that people are are staying in as New York does. And maybe that's why. Uh, there's so many different factors, but I think quarantining early before you had real transmission in the community was key. And I, I'm I'm by no means blaming. Uh, the governors in our area because they were hit first and it was unexpected. And we didn't, I shouldn't say unexpected, but the impact of it wasn't really as well known and we weren't rushing. And the experience here has really led other people to say, this can get really bad if we don't do the right thing. And so it's been helpful for others, but we were late in terms of what was already going on when we went into quarantine. Uh, But like other places like new Orleans had Mardi Gras, which is ludicrous. When you think about it now, and even no. at the time when it happened, we were already saying this is a really bad idea. 
but your perspective changes so much on it. I mean, you know, I, I it, it's really easy to throw stones at somebody else, right? But we had, in emergency medicine, there was a big conference in New York in mid-March, early March, excuse me. And there were a lot of people calling and saying, we should cancel this this conference with what's going on. And it went ahead anyway. And a bunch of people from that conference ended up being positive. And in retrospect, you look at it and you're like, that was a ridiculous thing to do. At the time, it was kind of 50-50, right? I mean, there were a lot of people that are like, it's going to be fine. There's no cases. And then there was a lot of people saying this is a really bad idea. We were at a, a bit of a tipping point. And so I, I can't really throw stones at Louisiana either because things were so different a month ago than they are today. I mean, we've lived years in the last four weeks um, in, in how much things have, have shifted and changed. And, and yes, it probably shouldn't have happened. There shouldn't have been Mardi Gras. There shouldn't have been spring break in Florida. It was a bad idea, but it's a lot easier to say that now than it was to say it back then. Right. I want to go back to this, the, this, this concept again. And I, and I think w- one thing that we didn't really talk about is, is the idea that, you know, what are the actual sacrifices that we're asking? I mean, sometimes we're asking the many to sacrifice a little bit for the few that get a large benefit. Again, not black and white. How much are you asking people to sacrifice? You know, it's not always going to be your life. Uh, most of the time, it's not. Right. right. And I mean, we do that every day, right? I mean, that's that's taxes. Right. That's, uh, that's paying into a health insurance system, right? I mean, you ask the majority of people in that health insurance system to pay a small premium, a small amount that they might never even use. I mean, I, don't, I have no health expenses. So I'm paying into a system that supports others. And so my... My being part of the many paying in is helping the few. That's that's just logic. That's just the way it has to work, right? That's how right. taxes have to work. That's how insurance – if insurance didn't work that way, there would be no insurance. There would be no insurance providers if there weren't the many who were never going to reap benefit from it. Or, or life insurance is a, another great example, right? I mean, I hope I never have to use my life insurance policy, but it's there and I'm paying into it and I'm paying into it because somebody else will need to use it and that money has to be there for them. Right. All right. Well – so before we get into how you knew Leonard Nimoy, I wonder if you can give me some closing thoughts. No, I think the I think the line makes a lot of sense in theory to be able to say, you know, one person gives their life to save hundreds, thousands, whatever it is. But it's so much more gray instead of black and white in real life. And and this pandemic really brings a lot of that out. How many grays, how many different inputs there are that we're trying to take into account when we're making those decisions. And I think sometimes the 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 needs of the few are actually something that helps the many, like you talked about with the vaccination for healthcare workers. And sometimes the needs of the few really do outweigh the needs of the many. And sometimes it is the other way around. And we are on the front lines. We're trying to figure out what what decision we make that's going to be the best for everybody. But then we're also faced with the single patient in front of us and what decision is going to be best for them. And sometimes those two things run contrary to each other, but more of the time, they're running parallel or they're running slightly askew. And it's just not, it's not easy for me to say, if I do this, other people will be able to benefit, but the person in front of me won't. And sometimes we make the decision thinking this will be the best for everybody. And then it's not. And sometimes we make the decision thinking it's probably not going to be best for everyone. And it is, it's, it's just too difficult to know. And it's much easier afterwards to say the decision I made wasn't the best decision or the decision I made was actually a really good one or the decision I didn't make was also a good one. I think it's it's just too difficult to have that simple cause and effect and the immediacy with which some of the things that we have to do actually come to bear makes it even more difficult. Yes, good conclusion. 
Okay, and now you should explain how you know Leonard Nimoy if, you, if your sister's <laughs> okay to, with no, that. No, I have to. I have to explain it. It's a great. It's a good story. It's funny because like you forget about these things sometimes because they happen like long enough ago that they're not in your mind. So, um, so I have a sister who's four years younger than me. Three years younger than me. Four years younger than I am. Oh, don't admit that. <laughs> four years. Four years younger than I am. Um, who went to Columbia for undergrad, and I think she was a sophomore or a junior. Probably a sophomore. She was dating this guy, um, super nice guy, and um, he was Leonard Nimoy's son um, from his – I think uh, his wife's name was Susan, if I remember correctly. Um, and it was their son. And, and I remember my sister like – you know, it's such a New York thing because like everyone is connected to somebody who's famous. And she's like, yeah. She's like, I'm dating this guy. Blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, tell me about it. She's like, well, this is going to sound weird, but he's Leonard Nimoy's son. And I'm like – Okay, that's that's the weirdest thing to know about somebody. And it, like, it's just a very strange thing. And so, you know, like I, I, uh, I, I can't remember. I think I was in, I was getting my master's in public health at the time, so I was in the city also. So we would like go and have drinks and stuff. And then the the reason I met him, so my parents had met uh, had met uh, Leonard Nimoy a couple of times because like they'd gone to the they'd gone to same events as my sister and her boyfriend were, and and so they'd see see him there. And uh, and I'm like, I gotta meet him. I mean, like, you know, I grew up watching Star Trek. My dad loved Star Trek. And so um, the my, my time to meet him was it was like the, the end of the year. And uh, his son was moving out of the dorms at Columbia. And I don't think he had a driver's license. I'm not sure if anybody, any of them had a driver's license, to be totally honest with you. But they were like, my sister's like, so they want to know if you would mind picking up uh, a U-Haul van and then helping them to uh, move him out and bring his stuff to their apartment. And I'm like... You know what I'm going to ask? Do I get to meet Leonard Nimoy? She's like, you'll get to meet Leonard Nimoy. I'm like, done. So uh, this was like a Friday. So I, I, I stayed at a friend's place on Thursday, went across town, picked up the U-Haul van, drove up to Columbia, loaded all of the stuff from his room into this U-Haul van. And then I drove them down to their apartment. They had an apartment that was like really close to um, the uh, uh, either the Natural History Museum or the Metro, the Met. I can't remember which one it was, but they were like right by Central Park, uh, Central Park West. And so I drove all this stuff down there. And so I'm driving this U-Haul van. Um, the, the, the son is sitting next to me and Leonard Nimoy and his wife are in like the back of the U-Haul van sitting on the floor. And, and Wait, they were all in the U-Haul? They were all in the U-Haul. For whatever reason, they were all in the U-Haul. And, uh, and, and Leonard Nimoy is a tall guy. You know, he's not, he's not short. So he's sitting there and his like, knees are like up in his face sitting in the back of this U-Haul van with like all of his son's stuff, me driving him down there. And um, – and I, I got to have like a little a little tour of their building and the apartment. And you know he's a big art collector, so the their whole apartment is just all artwork um, that that um, him and his wife have collected. It was it was uh, a crazy. I didn't even though I grew up near New York, I didn't have like a New York childhood. <laughs> It was like growing up with famous people. Like that's not a thing. And so I'm like, look that at that is not what most New York. That is not most what New most New Yorkers, New Yorkers do not have. grow up no. next to famous no. people. No, I grew up in New York. I was not connected <laughs> to any famous people. So it was just, it was a very like bizarre. Like I'm doing something that's just so um, so inane and like everybody does this. Helping so a friend like, move out, but I'm helping so Leonard Nimoy's son move out. So okay, so this just brings up the question like. They're in the back. Do, do you feel like there's this pressure to like, 
I should be saying something, but in this situation, normally you would just kind of like drive the truck and they're in the back and like yeah. there's not much to talk about. But did you feel like there was pressure? There, like, yeah, there definitely was. Now, like, I, I don't want to be, I definitely didn't want to be like a fanboy, like, oh, I love your stuff. Like, this is my favorite movie, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, <laughs> and, and you know, you're probably not going to be able to use this for the podcast. I'm not a big uh, Star Trek 3 fan, The Search for Spock, not my favorite movie. And that was like, that that was when he directed. That was one of the ones that that Nimoy directed. Not not my favorite. So I was like, okay, say something nice, start a conversation, but don't say that. Don't say I didn't like your movie. You know, I, I think I'm smart enough not to do that. But I wanted to like you know be personable and, and talk to him. So we chatted about you know New York stuff, and I, I was asked. I knew he was an art collector, so I was like, oh, you know what? I took an art history class in college. I'll talk art with him. Not the same kind of art. <laughs> no, like we're studying like Renaissance art. He's more of like a modern art collector. Um, so it's like not that not the same thing. He he published like a, a a book. He was a big photographer. Um, so he he published a book of nudes. Um, and, and I'm like I don't know anything about photography or nudes. I'm like I have nothing to talk about. So it was it was definitely like a bit of a strained uh, uh, conversation. But but at the same time, I'm like and and of course you know my sister my sister knows that. Uh, if given the opportunity, I'll try to make a joke out of whatever it is. And so she was like, okay, I got to set down some ground rules now before you meet him. And I'm like, okay. So she was like, you know, don't talk about, try not to do this or that, whatever it was. And she's like, and I know exactly what you're going to ask. And you can't ask him. I'm like, what do you think I'm going to ask? She's like, you're going to ask about the Hobbit song that Leonard Nimoy sang and the video. And I'm like, I can't not ask about the Hobbit song. Like, I, I got to ask about Frodo or Bilbo, whatever, uh, the Bilbo Baggins song. I got to ask about it because he's doing a music video about Bilbo Baggins and he's dressed as a sailor. I'm like, there's so many questions that I need to ask about that. And she wouldn't let me ask any of them. So I never got answers to those questions. So wait, so you did not ask that question then, even though. No, I really, really, really wanted to ask him. And the thing is, I don't think, Josh, that I could have phrased the question any other way except what the fuck were you guys thinking? Um, But but I mean, it's also like it's this amazing pop culture moment. If you've seen the video, you can't get it out of your head. It it stays there forever. And so like I thought it was a reasonable thing to ask. But she was like, don't ask that question. I'm like, all right, I won't ask the question. So I never, never, never got to ask it. Never got the answer. It still seems bizarre that, like, again, you're doing this very mundane thing, and there's, you know, like, usually you you try to figure out, you know, you try to work in some sort of way of getting to a, a question or a conversation. So yeah. it's like, there's this, there's, 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 there's this. no way. That's the, that was the only thing in my head. There was no way. And and, <laughs> and and I'll be honest, like, I've had this this that particular interaction. I've had that many times with. Any time that I have that, it is always. Uh, in relation to my sister it's always like some like she's involved in it you know some weird thing like the first time i came out to la um she was like oh i have to go meet you know my boss for coffee and i'm like okay i'm just gonna go for a run and then uh just tell me where the coffee place is i'll gra- I'll, I'll just run there and i'll grab a coffee and um you know she's like very low-key about it and i and i walk in and like the person she's meeting with is spike jones and i'm like what the hell is going on like you're having coffee with spike jones like this is weird but like for her it's like it's just like it's part it's been part of her life for such a long time and she she tries not to make a big deal about these things so um it's 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 all but it's always with she's always in the story nice always all right well swami i think i've taken up enough of your time thank you you should get back to your family all right i'm gonna go run up and take care of my kids josh because i said i would This is good talking. Uh, yeah, thank dude. you again so much. Yeah, um, I hope it's helpful. And, uh, yeah, yeah. All right, man. All right. I'll Thanks talk to you soon. I also want to thank Josh and Shabam host and producer Wendy Roderweiss 
for joining me on Mission Log Live last week. If you missed that one, give it a look at our Facebook page or subscribe to it at podcast.roddenberry.com. It's a little different from the regular Mission Log, and the more of you who check it out, the more Mission Log we get to do. As always, stay in touch with us, okay? missionlogpodcast.com or shoot us an email at missionlog at roddenberry.com or join us on Facebook or Twitter at missionlogpod. We want to know that you're okay, you're staying safe and healthy, and we'll try our best to keep you entertained and stimulated, every now and then outraged, depending on the episode that you're listening to. So until then, cheers from me and Norman and Rod and everybody else at Roddenberry. podcast.roddenberry.com the Roddenberry Podcast Network Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly because no matter what moves you made last year TurboTax makes them count That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time.